welcome a very special guest preacher here at Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church, the Reverend Dr. Cynthia Rigby um, from Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, a good friend of our congregation, has agreed to be with us this Sunday and next Sunday um, to preach some incredible sermons based on a book that she's about to publish, a book called Holding Faith. Um, and I welcome you, and I have to say I personally am so grateful to have this nice break before I take the mantle here, Cynthia. So thank you very much. Please help me in welcoming her. Thank you. It is always a privilege to be at Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church. You know, when you do a lot of speaking and stuff, the um, it, it can be hard because you're not at your home church every week, which is University Press in town. But uh, a few years ago, I realized I have several home churches, and Westlake Hills I like to claim as, as one of my churches. So thanks for always receiving me so warmly and for everything that, uh, that I learned from you. Even in the fellowship hour, I learned about one of the many ministries of Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church, and it's the uh, water ministry for a town, I forgot the name already, in Nicaragua that some of the youth have uh, established and are working on. And it, it's really inspiring to see young people behind the, the table uh, 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 who envisioned this, not only had an idea, but actually brought it to fruition. And I appreciate that Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church is a place where uh, everybody can have a vision and, and be supported in that kind of work. So... We have a reading now from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Let us listen again for God's word to us. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, Is it not fair? It is not fair, he answered to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of our Lord. It's an honor to be your preacher for these couple of Sundays. I thought I'd take the opportunity to think together with you about what it means to hold faith when faith seems hard to hold. These days, my read on what's going on around us is that many of us are feeling discouraged about the state of our nation and even the state of our world. Last week was kind of a rough week, wasn't it? Uh, we need to be in prayer for our leaders, for our president, uh, some of the pundits, and I don't know how many pundits you read, but after a while, there are a lot of pundits 
We're but some say that uh, last week was the hardest week so far in the president's tenure, and we're still kind of watching and waiting, or maybe even checking out, trying to see how matters in Charlottesville um, resolve or where they go next. What does it mean to hold faith in these days, in these times? I suspect that when we think of the word faith, we associate it with having patience, letting go and letting God. We associate it with the idea that we need to trust. There was an old hymn called Trust and Obey, for there's no other way, right? To be happy with Jesus. Um, all these things, I think, are true of faith, that we have to trust, that we have to wait on the Lord, that we have to be patient, that we have to pray for patience, but they are not all there is to faith. Holding faith can also mean being impatient, not because God owes us anything, but because we believe that God is going to come through on what God has promised us, and we're ready for God to show us the money, so to speak. And faith can even be a bit bodacious, if I can use that word, bodacious, because what God has promised, lions and lambs lying down together, every tear wiped away from every eye, what God has promised is completely outlandish, isn't it? The kingdom of God is outlandish. So you have to, if you're a person of hope, if you're a person of faith, if you're a person who believes, one is kind of bodacious in the face of what we see going on around us to lay claim to God's promise. So this week I'm going to think about in the sermon what it means to be a person of faith who is sometimes called to be pushy. And next week, what it means to be a person of faith who is called to lean into the promises of God. Please pray again with me. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart gathered together in your presence this morning be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Remember when we were little and we were told not to talk back? My dad was especially big on this rule. Don't talk back to your mother, he said. She'd always smile when he said that. Nothing like support, right? Don't talk back to your mother. And my dad took this so seriously that he went even further than this. He would correct my brothers and myself. I have two brothers. If, we, if he discerned that we were even being a bit disrespectful. So for example, if we were to say, but she wouldn't let us go to the party. But she doesn't understand. My dad would give us the look and he would say, your mother is not a she. Your mother is your mother. And don't you talk back to your mother. As we grew up, we learned there are lots of other people we're not allowed to talk back to besides our mothers. <laughs> Teachers, school starts tomorrow right? Teachers, ministers, some of that's worn off with ministers, just to <laughs> fill you in in case you hadn't noticed ministers, doctors and bosses, and maybe even old Uncle Bob, you know, old Uncle 
Bob, quotation marks, whose politics might be atrocious, but your parents told you, you know, don't argue with Uncle Bob, he's old, he has a right to believe what he, what he thinks. I'm not saying all old people. I get, get myself in hot water, but I can remember my dad saying that about my grandparents, actually. You know, don't just, it's not worth it, right? And by the way, now that I think about it, there are some young people who I'd say are kind of uncle, whoever, or aunt, whoever, right? It's just not worth getting into it. You know what I'm saying? People like that, don't talk back. Not worth getting into it. A lot of us learned over the course of time that there are real advantages to resisting the urge to talk back. There are real advantages. When we at least appear to agree with those who are in positions of authority, they like us better. And so they watch out for us. They look out for us. They might, in fact, even advance us in the workplace in whatever ways are in their power. When we resist the urge to talk back, we're even allowed to hang out with the important talking type people. Without, we can hang out with the talkers. We can earn a kind of honorary membership when we're viewed as being cooperative and supportive. We can be powerful by association, powerful by nodding, silent agreement. To resist talking back means we reserve all the energy it would take to do so for other aspects of our life. Let's face it, to talk back takes wit, it takes smarts, it takes focus, it takes confidence, and it even takes time that many of us feel is a scarcity in our lives. A lot of us are time-starved in American culture. Then there's the, the issue of, uh, of just being able to do it at all. It's almost a skill set you have to develop to be able to talk back. I mean, I, I look at the story of the Canaanite woman, and I think, man, how did she come up with that? You know, how'd she come up with that just on the drop of a dime? What she says back to Jesus when she says, but well, even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. See, it takes me six to 24 hours to come up with a response like that, you know? And, and it takes a lot of time. You ever do shower talks to yourself? Maybe I'm revealing too much, but you kind of go back and forth. You're, you're replaying the conversation. You're like, ah, that's what I should have said. She thinks of it right away. So all of this is a real investment. And if we just skip talking back, we can save all of that, uh, that time for other things. Um, we keep our mouths shut. Again, we also won't get into trouble. Won't get into trouble, because there's some real risk to talking back. Remember the trouble Oliver got into in Oliver Twist, or the musical Oliver, when he comes? Remember, he comes with the bull, and he walks up the long... In the movie, there are these long... Uh, it's the poorhouse, right, in uh, 18th century England, and he comes up this long uh, row of tables where they're eating gruel. And he comes, he says, Can I have some more... And then everyone just looks at him like this is completely out of the realm of possibility to back talk, to even ask for more. Right? Or uh, uh, how about in um, The Little Mermaid, Ariel says, I want to go where the people are, right? Well, her father's not too pleased with that kind of back talk, that kind of questioning. In fact, uh, you know, it works out okay at the end of the movie. I'm not sure. It, it works out that well in the original version of the story. Yeah, okay, I see a few parents going, no, we like the Disney version. But the father, uh, the father says there's going to be a big, a big penalty 
for, uh, for this kind of back talk. Um, and what about that emperor who's not wearing any clothes and we're all pretending, oh yeah, nice outfit. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, back talk uh, comes at a cost. Uh, to talk back can make for a good musical or a story or a movie, but in real life it infuriates those who provide for us, those who rule over us, and even those who love us most and just want us to be okay. They don't want us to be agitated. Maybe uh, Ariel's father is a good example of that too. He just wants her to just, just be happy with what you have, happy with the life as it is. So there are, let me reiterate, uh, good reasons not to talk back. The problem comes, of course, that we get so good at not talking back that we don't know how to talk back when God is calling us to do so. We may not even know how to go about discerning when and where and how God is calling us to talk back. Believing we have a responsibility to do what we can to join in God's work in the world, we want to utilize a little bit of back talk now and again, and maybe I'm lowballing it. Sometimes we might have to utilize a lot of backtalk. Maybe backtalk doesn't come in small packages. Uh, once we've learned to keep our mouths shut, though, it's tough. We might feel inadequate to the task. We might feel afraid. We might feel frustrated with ourselves. We might feel like, what, what do I have to say, really? I mean, how much can I really say, right? Uh, how, you know, I stutter. It's been said before, remember Moses, I stutter, send in Aaron, I, I can't do the back talk, I can't go to fair, I can't, I can't do that. Even Moses said that, Moses, you know, Moses, we, we heard about him a minute ago, Moses even had feelings of inadequacy. Now, Miriam, Moses' sister, like many of us, doesn't begin to know how to be pushy in an appropriate kind of a way in this story. She doesn't know how to be pushy in a way that is transformational. She has something to say, she and brother Aaron, but instead of saying it in a way that respects the authority of Moses, the calling of Moses, she falls into the trap of gossiping and diverting the black hole of gossip, the sin of putting down someone else with the mistaken notion that it will somehow add to her power, that it will somehow lift her up. Do we ever do this? Yes. Instead of confronting someone face to face, right up front, honestly, telling them what is right, telling them what is true, telling, us what, telling them what needs to be done, we withdraw and talk to someone else, and maybe divert and talk about something else. Maybe on some level, we're just trying to appear like we're cooperating, right? But it all comes out somewhere, this, 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 uh, this feeling we have that something different should be done. We who are called to be leaders sometimes try to subvert leadership rather than standing up and taking the place that God has given us. We who have power use it to destroy rather than to create. Miriam, our sister, the one, remember, who sang so powerfully about the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Same Miriam with the tambourine dancing around singing. This powerful Miriam has not talked back 
but talked behind her brother Moses' back and behind God's back. That didn't work out too well, by the way. With her other brother Aaron, she's complained about Moses breaking the rules and marrying a Cushite. But I think I can see what's really going on here. Miriam and Aaron, I don't think are really, this is, this is pushing my luck, I might be wrong. But I wonder if they're really all that concerned about who Moses married. Because you know what we do? We find something we can gossip about, pull someone down about, when really we're just jealous of their power, right? I wonder if maybe they're just sort of, ah, we got this on Moses, and now they're using it to drag him down. Moses has more power than they do, at least in their conception. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They ask. Has he not spoken through us also? They say. It's hard to imagine a biblical quote that sounds more similar to something that I would say. You know, who does she think she is? I could do that, I might say. What she got that I haven't got, I might ask. Why does he get to be the talker? Why does he get to be the one who's up there? Hasn't God given me something to say too, we ask ourselves? For goodness sake, Miriam and Aaron, the answer to your question is yes. Of course God has something to say through you. So why don't you start talking if you have something to say? Quit participating in all this destructive, life-sucking, disrespectful gossip and figure out what you're going to bring to the table. I'd hardly be doing my job in looking at this text if I didn't mention that it is Miriam and not Aaron who is struck with leprosy. Uh, there are some funny points in the story, and one of them is when Aaron says to God, uh, don't do this to us. And you almost can see Miriam over at the side. She's white with leprosy. Her skin is all ruined by the leprosy. And she's like, ah, uh, us? Why am I the one who gets zapped? And, you know, it could be that, uh, that, that this has something to do with the fact that, uh, that, that some people are penalized even more than others for speaking out. And there is still a tendency. I'm saying it softly so you'll think about the point. There, oh, this isn't even the mic. It's on my ear. <laughs> It, when it's there, though, you kind of... Um, there's still a tendency to penalize women more than men for speaking out. Although, it can go both ways, but women more than men. And we could dwell on that, but I'd rather kind of look at the text from another angle and say this. I don't think Miriam has the foggiest idea how much power she has. I mean, face it, if God didn't think of her as a powerful leader, God would just say, eh... I'm not going to bother, right? It's the fact that God has called Miriam that leads God to say, hey, listen, I've got to get Miriam straightened out here. She's off track. She, as well as Aaron, are off track. It's because she has power. What if she could realize that power and calling that Miriam that she has? And then she's got these two brothers. I mean, Moses and Aaron are really distraught that she is sick. They're really distraught. They advocate for her. And then she has the entire community around her, and they don't act for seven days. They stand with her. They pause until Miriam comes back into the community again. She has got a cloud of witnesses around her. And that's something for us to remember, too, when we engage in back talk because we're called to talk back. 
We don't do it as lone rangers. We do it as members of communities like this that can listen to us, maybe argue with us, not always endorse everything we have to say, but argue with us, help us frame things, right? Tell us when we're off track, but will stand with us, will support us, even when we've made a mistake and have to uh, uh, have a period of time where we're, uh, you know, like Miriam did the seven days before she can be brought in fully. We also have another text this morning, as if this one story of Miriam wasn't enough. I don't know whose fault that was. It was the preacher's fault, selected too. But here's the method to the madness, is Miriam shows us what it looks like to talk back in a problematic way, right? You're talking around things, you're talking behind people's backs, you're pulling people down, you're not recognizing your own power, you're not discerning what it is God is calling you to say and taking the risk of saying it, you're not knowing that you're supported in the context of community. Now the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, she's showing what it looks like to engage in backtalk, to be pushy, right? In the right kind of way in the story. Talk about pushy. She comes to Jesus shouting. The disciples can't stand it. The disciples are like, get rid of this woman. She's nagging. Come on, you got to heal my daughter. You got to heal my daughter. Begging. She gets down on her knees. I mean, come on already. That's just a little much. Take it away from me already. That's kind of manipulative. Insisting. And not only that, using her incredible mind to give witty responses. She is not talking behind Jesus' back, but comes face to face with him. She's poised and ready to talk back audaciously because she believes something needs to be done and she believes that Jesus can and will do it. (laughs) Her daughter, tormented by a demon, needs to be freed. First, Jesus, this this is a hard text, for Jesus. But you know, Jesus doesn't need to be rescued. We never have to worry about Jesus, right? The, the, the story, the story really says this. If you go back and read it in Matthew, it says he ignores her. Jesus ignores her. And you know, if I had the, had the guts to go and say something to Jesus, that would already be good for me. If he ignored me, I'd probably go, oh, you're right, and kind of tail between my legs. I'd be, she comes back at him, right? He ignores her. And then she makes her request again, and he comes up with this very difficult comment that people have tried to figure out and still are trying to figure out. He says to her, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now, uh, there's some textual evidence that the word for dogs actually means Little cute puppies, right? So like domestic pets. Um, So maybe Jesus said, uh, it's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the cute little puppies under the table, but you still have kind of a problem because Jesus is still saying to the woman, you're not a child, right? You're the puppy under the table, even if you are cute. So it helps a little if it's not dogs and it's cute little puppies if you know anything about the history of interpretation of this text, but still we're in a bit of a quandary. I'm not going to try to rescue Jesus. I want to think about the Syrophoenician woman, I mean the Canaanite woman, and and how she has faith and speaks boldly to Jesus. Because when Jesus says this, it's very interesting. She doesn't argue with him. She hears what he's saying, but she comes right back in there 
And she says brilliantly, yes, Lord. <laughs> she says, but even the little cute little puppies under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus then does not put her in her place. He doesn't say to her, which I think I would expect, this is what the disciples were saying under their breath, I'm sure, when is he going to tell her to get lost? Jesus says, great is your faith. Isn't that amazing? I got a shiver when I said that. Great is your faith. Here's this woman who audaciously argues, wittily argues, forcefully argues, pushily argues with Jesus, and Jesus says, your faith is great. Question is, how do we have such a great faith that we too can discern when to be pushy? How do we go about it? I know that I have put words out before. I've, I've engaged in back, back talk and been scolded for good reason because my words have come from a kind of jealousy or sinfulness or just, you know, the, my words have been like Miriam in the story. Now, I also know that at times I have said one or two things that make some sense and I've been told to shut up because the truth of what I was saying would mean a lot of disruption for uh, systems or for um, you know, how we're doing something in the workplace or doing something in a church. And you know, that can be exhausting when people hear you and it's hard then to come back and say it again in another way. But the Canaanite woman is a great model for that. She does it with savvy. She does it with savvy and she does it with determination. And she does it not this way, focused on herself, but focused on what it is that she believes God can do, Jesus can do in the story. If it's hard for us to step up and say the right thing to begin with, it's even harder to keep talking once we've been scolded for being pushy. <clears throat> While I marvel at this Canaanite woman's quick response uh, for, uh, to Jesus' comment, I want to mention just a couple of things that I learned from her. First, she does not waste any time when she's pushy getting into an argument with Jesus. She doesn't say, how dare you call me a cute little puppy under the table, right? That is not true. I am a child. You should read your Bible more, Jesus. I'm a child of God just like, uh, just like the Israelites are. So she doesn't argue. And second, she's not really trying to be witty. She's just trying to be honest. You know, so often when we engage in back talk, you have the shower conversation with yourself and you go in to, to talk to someone about something and immediately you start trying to win the argument. See? You forget that, that the point isn't winning the argument. The point is inviting someone into the truth of what it is that, that you, you believe you have discerned. It's this very different energy, right? So how do we stay sort of on the point of, of, of what it is that we're bringing, that we're sharing with the person, even if we're in a conflict when we engage in back talk, so that we can be together in relationship to what is true and good rather than just beating them in an argument? These are big questions, huh? <clears throat> A Canaanite woman uh, believes that God can work wonders and that God is able to work even through the crumbs that are lying on the floor. We've all known people like this who can somehow make a whole meal out of a bunch of crumbs. My grandmother, who was dirt poor, always seemed to be able to get something on the table. 
Uh, she also made crazy quilts. She'd save up all these little scraps and make these beautiful quilts, which she probably gave away to everyone. My mom still is bitter about that because we don't have a single quilt, quilt that her mom made because she gave them all away. She didn't know she was poor. She always found someone else who was more poor to give things to. Um, and I watch uh, things like uh, uh, kids who collect, my kids like to collect all these shelves and we have all these boxes of shelves and boxes of pebbles all over the house and in the garage. Um, and they put them together and they do projects with them. Um, they make me ask myself the question, uh, thinking of the Canaanite woman, how many people of faith have found sustenance and value in that which um, our culture would readily discard in things that look like they uh, should be discarded? Uh, the Canaanite woman's back talk is a living testimony to her belief that God can make something out of nothing, that God can take crumbs and turn them into bounty, I think this is also useful for us to reflect on in these days when I hear every day people say, I just don't even know whether there can be any hope. You know, things are unraveling so quickly in society, uh, I don't know where to turn. You know, the Canaanite woman would say, let's gather up those crumbs because they are going to sustain. Let's gather up the crumbs, believing that God will sustain us with them. One of the things I appreciate about my husband, Bill, is that he teaches our children how to stay in there in, uh, in, in arguments, in making persuasive arguments, how to talk back in a way that isn't just about fighting, but is a way of winning people over so that together you can share in what is right and true. Uh, I remember when they were tiny kids, uh, they, would, they would ask for something and my husband would say, uh, well, can you make a case for that? Because I'm not inclined to do it. Uh, my son Xander, who's now 13, when he was five, I remember, had been sick and he really wanted to go to the park. And my husband said, well, you're sick, you can't go to the park. Can you make a case for it? He said, well, I'm feeling much better. I don't have a fever anymore and I really want to go. That was always one of the reasons they gave. I really want to do it. And so he got to go to the park. I remember another time my daughter was three and I was, on, I was at a church thing somewhere, church gig, and I'm on the phone and I heard my daughter say, Daddy, I want gum. And he said, you can't have gum. And she said, but Daddy, I won't swallow it, and I like it. And he said, and he said uh, sorry, these cutesy stories, but he said, okay, that's a good argument. You can have some gum. You know? but, but I almost wonder you, you know, if we could you know, train each other right, to practice making these arguments. It's not for the sake of winning, see? It's for the sake of persuading. It's for the sake of unity, it's for the sake even of understanding each other. And it's far preferable to uh, the antics of Miriam, to the gossip, or to the whining that all of us uh, engage in, not only kids, but also adults, when we don't get uh, what we want. Maybe the Canaanite woman practiced giving an account of what it is she hoped for. Maybe she got up every morning, looked in the mirror, and rehearsed what she would say, back if the power said, make a good case. Or maybe she was simply desperate for the sake of her daughter, and this was the one time in her life she happened to say just the right thing. Either way, it's clear from Jesus' comment that she spoke out of hope. How else but in hope could she be so courageous? How else but in hope could she have the nerve to talk back to the powers around her, bearing witness to the power of God? 
I think of other biblical figures and their engagement with the powers that be. I wish Eve had talked back to the serpent. I wish she had told that serpent to go to Sheol. <laughs> and I'm thankful for all those in the Bible who did talk back, for Abraham who negotiated with God the survival of the city, remember? Uh, for Esther, who risked her life to request an audience with the king. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, even though it meant being thrown into the fiery furnace. For Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, who just went ahead and laid on Jesus the bottom line, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Talk about sass. Read that story in John 11. For Thomas, who was honest about his doubts. Right, remember? For all of these, faithfulness meant being pushy at times and talking back was an act of faithfulness. Where and when do we talk back? In prayer? In relation to the powers that be? Are our comments well considered? Are they witty? Are they respectful? The bottom line question is this. Are they reflections of our faith? the great faith we have that God is able to work with even the crumbs? Are they spoken out of conviction, believing with the Canaanite woman that God will do wonders among us because God has promised? In these days, there are lots of pushy people, lots of people talking back. We reach for the paper every morning, to read what they're saying about Charlottesville and Barcelona. We grab our phones to see if there's a new tweet and how the pundits are responding. The question is, the question is, the question is, what do we have to say? What do you have to say? What do I have to say? What do we have to say that isn't the jealous and damaging back talk of Miriam, but is the transformational pushing of the Canaanite woman? And will we have the courage to say it? Do we have the courage to say and to do what God is calling us to do, even if it means that people will look at us and sometimes call us pushy? May God give us the grace to push in a way that is faithful and the wisdom to discern when and where God is calling us to do so. Let the people of God say, Amen.